for Scripture. Anyone that brings anything that is on the level of Scripture or adds to Scripture, it's easy for us to see that they're false prophets, that they're false teachers. But something that I think we need to differentiate is this office of apostle. There is kind of a disagreement here. So we need to point out that the office of apostle, we, well, I should just say, we need to point out that apostle simply means to be sent with authority. So we can find some people that were called apostles in the New Testament that we wouldn't say holds the office of apostle. And yet they were called apostles. And they were called apostles because they were sent from one church with authority from that church to go talk to other churches. So they were called apostles, but we wouldn't say that they hold the, the office of apostle. So we have what we consider the office of apostle. But not every church kind of recognizes what we recognize as the office of apostle. Now does that mean that because they think there is still an office of apostle, that they are necessarily heretics? And I would say that depends. Do these apostles write scripture? Then yes. But do these apostles just think that there is a certain amount of authority that they hold within the church? That I think that's bad theology, that's wrong theology, but that doesn't necessarily make them heretics. That doesn't necessarily make them false teachers or false prophets. There's just a disagreement in what the office of apostle actually means. So for us, we look at Acts, and we see that in Acts, the apostles had to be someone that was with Jesus from the beginning. So from his baptism forward, an apostle had to be with him. That's how they chose the apostle to replace Judas. And then we find that Paul was, a, was called an apostle born out of, uh, out of due time. And it, he was actually instructed by Jesus in a different way. He wasn't with Jesus from the beginning. So there's a disagreement on what it means to be, in the, or what the office of apostle means. And I think the people that think that there are that there's still an office of apostle, I think they're wrong. I think it can lead to some dangerous theology. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they would fall under what 1 John calls antichrist. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are false prophets. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are false teachers. Wrong? Yes. False prophet? I don't think so. In particular, if they are still checking all of their doctrine with Scripture, if they're still looking towards Scripture as the authoritative source, I don't think you can call them false teachers. If they believe that there is no new Scripture, and they're trying their best to follow Scripture, well, there's a lot of grace we can give them. Would I submit? Would I go to their church? Probably not. But that doesn't mean that they're antichrist, according to John. Would I say that they have bad theology? Yeah. But bad theology doesn't necessarily make someone an antichrist. But that's for us today. John's audience didn't have the New Testament yet. So they had these people claiming to be apostles and claiming that their word was on par with the other apostles. Today we have this clear test. Is what they're saying lining up with scripture? No? Okay. Then we can call them false teachers. But John's audience didn't have the word test. They didn't have the scripture test. So they needed another test. And that is what we will talk about today.
as we continue our series, Christ is Light, a walk through 1 John. We're going to be picking up in 1 John 4, 1 today, and we'll go all the way through 6. So last week ended with John's encouragement that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you've ever put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've ever come to the conclusion that because you have sinned, because you have rebelled against God, you have been separated from God, but Jesus came as God in the flesh and paid the price for your sin so that you can be reconciled back to Christ or back to God. If you've ever come to that conclusion, and you've put your faith and trust in Christ, then you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that indwelling Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. That indwelling Holy Spirit grows us and matures us in Christ and in His grace. And, and John lets us know that even if our hearts condemn us, that God is greater. And so sometimes as he's writing this out, he's writing this letter, some people might think, this is too big. This responsibility is too big. This is too great. There's no way I can ever measure up. And your heart begins to condemn you, and, and your heart might start to try to convince you that you're not even really a believer. Do you even really love God because you keep on messing up? And he writes, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater. So if you put your faith and trust in Christ, then you can, be, you can have confidence in front of God. So part of the evidence that you are a believer is that the Holy Spirit even convicts you. That even the fact that you feel like, man, God, I don't measure up. That's, that's evidence that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. In this next section, John is going to contrast the Holy Spirit with other spirits. So we'll pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus, or that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit, spirit of error. So we got a lot going on. We'll jump right into verse, or verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. So this term, beloved, precedes a command. In all occurrences, this word implies a close relationship between John and his readers. There was a close relationship here. It wasn't like he was some distant teacher that didn't know them. He knew them personally. He cared for them. But it also lends a particular weight to the command that follows. Because he cares for them in such a way, there is a weight to this. John is not writing as some distant authority figure, but as a mentor with a personal regard for his audience. And the command that John gives is to not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So there was this idea that the false prophets, the false teachers were coming in, those who he called the Antichrist were coming in, and just like the apostle said, hey, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is working through me to write Scripture. I have the authority that Jesus has given me. These false teachers, false prophets, who John calls the Antichrist, 
They come in and they have the exact same claim. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Listen to me. I'm just like the apostles over there. That is their claim. So he, he says, hey, don't, don't accept everyone that claims this. Don't accept everyone that says they have the indwelling Holy Spirit and that they have a special revelation for you. test the spirits. Once again, the idea is that believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, abiding in you. This is a major theme of John, that the Holy Spirit abides in you. So the problem the audience faced was some false teachers sneaking in saying they were on level with the apostles. They had the Spirit. So they needed to submit to the false teachers. And we can ident easily identify this today. If someone says they are on par with the authority of Scripture, then we can say you're wrong. You're not on par with the authority of Scripture. What you say is not authoritative in my life like Scripture is. That's an easy test. So that's what we do. We weigh everything someone says with scripture. But John's audience didn't have that test. So John encourages them to test the spirits whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now the verb test means to make a critical examination of something. To determine genuineness. To put it to the test or to examine this thing. The word was used in a couple different ways in uh, John's day. One was to put the test uh, to test counterfeit currency. As long as there's been currency, there's been counterfeits, right? So the test was, is this currency real or fake? And we've talked about this in the past. The best way to identify a counterfeit is to know the real thing. When you are so immersed in the gospel, when you know the gospel so well, then when a counterfeit gospel appears, you can say, no, it's counterfeit. I don't trust it. The second way that this verb test was used was in relation to politicians. As long as there has been government, there have been politicians who have been trying to weasel their way into power. So they tell one group what they want to hear and another group another thing. They become a pleasing, they, they tell people what pleases their ears, and it becomes difficult to know what the politician actually believes. They get really good at spinning things to make themselves look good. They get really crafty. They know how to be polite. They know how to come in and use the right verbiage and the right tone to make you believe them. So they wanted to put them to the test. So politicians become really good at twisting and manipulating. They become really good at making certain people their villains. And it becomes difficult to discern the real person and their motives. And I would say that since the church has begun, we wrestle with the same thing in the church. As long as there are people to influence, as long as there is some type of authority to usurp, there will be politicians trying to gain influence. Trying to manipulate you so that they can have more influence over you. So we're to, we are to scrutinize, to test, to make a critical examination of someone's claim. 
to be an apostle or to have authority. This does not mean we need to scrutinize every person in this building. That's not what he's saying. This does not mean we need to be critical of everyone who professes faith. The person to scrutinize is the person who says, I have a special revelation from God. And we're to scrutinize if they are, in fact, of God. And he'll give us this test in a bit, but I think it's important to note that there are spirits from God, people who come with authority to speak on his behalf, and who claim to have such authority. That's, that's John, John was saying that that happened, that he had, John was saying that he had this, he was of God and he had this special authority. So once again, I can't stress this enough. In John's day, this was the issue because the New Testament was still being written. The New Testament was still being composed. But in our day, it's easier. We have the canon. We have scripture to weigh everything with. So we are to test if the Spirit is of God because many false prophets have gone into the world. John witnessed Jesus on earth. He walked with Jesus. The audience was still in a time frame that people had witnessed Jesus' life, death, burial, and bodily resurrection. Yet many false prophets had already come. Think about that for a second. In that short of amount of time, there were already people who became politicians in the church. There were already people who wanted to grab power by twisting sound doctrine. There were already people that wanted to grab power by manipulating others. And so John gives them a test. Once again, now we have scripture to test everything someone says. But I think this is, this is a test that still applies to us today. This simple test. And that's found in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. So this is how we know if it's of God or not, right? So he's saying, hey, there's false prophets that have creeped in. There are politicians that are already trying to twist things. that are already trying to usurp power. So how do we know? Well, it's simple. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So John acknowledges very two different kinds of spiritual manifestations, right? Those who come of God, and if we keep going in verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. So there's two very different spiritual manifestations, right? There is the spirit of God, and there is the spirit of the Antichrist, who is against Christ. The test is simple. Does the person who claims to have authority over you confess the person and the work of Jesus? And once again, we see this title Christ here. Remember, Christ isn't a last name. That is his title. In the Hebrew, it would have been uh, the Messiah, right? So Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Jesus the one who came to save people. That's what Christ, that's what Messiah means. So it's a simple test. This would be if someone came and they said that Jesus came. We believe in a historical Jesus. Jesus was a real thing. But he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Christ. That would be an automatic fail. Boom. It failed the test. Others would come and they would say that Jesus is the Christ. He was the Messiah. But he didn't actually come in the flesh. He was just a spiritual being. So that we would say, they would say that Jesus was never fully man. That he 
wasn't God come in the flesh, but just spirit. Boom, that would be an automatic fail. You fell the test. If we look back, just a few verses, John gives us the full title, the Son of God. We can take uh, we can take a look at this letter and say that the test is really about knowing who Jesus is and what his work is. The person who is of God recognizes that Jesus is fully God, that he is eternal. This will be a heresy that creeps into the church later on, that Jesus was actually a created being, that Jesus wasn't eternal, that he wasn't a part of the Godhead, but that he was created by God, and then that God like, kind of filled him up and then produced Jesus. That is a failure of the test, this falsest claim that Jesus was created by God. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is and has and will be eternal. He is a co-existing part of the triune God. So to say that Jesus was created, fell to the test. Some people would say that, yes, Jesus was real, and that Jesus was the Messiah, and he died, but there was no bodily resurrection. Once again, that's a failure of the test. Jesus had a bodily resurrection. In his resurrection, he could eat. He went to Thomas and said, hey, touch me. Build my wounds. So to say that Jesus didn't have a bodily resurrection is a failure of the test. This has to do with the very core of Christianity, the very fundamentals, the very essentials of our faith. Is Jesus who he claims he is? Jesus was born of a virgin, meaning he had a, a human life. But he was also God. So we, we, need to, we need to confirm the deity of Christ. But we also need to confirm the atoning death, that Jesus died in our place. And we also need to say that he had a bodily resurrection. If we deny that Jesus came in the flesh, if we deny that he was fully God, if we deny his atoning death, and we deny his bodily resurrection, we fell the test. This is the core. These are the bedrock of our faith. These are the very essentials of the faith. For 2,000 years, the church has been earnestly united on these essentials of the faith. This is it. So I believe that John's examination of the Spirit kind of boils down to these points. But they didn't have the complete New Testament Scripture yet, so it, so it just comes down. So we can, we can look back and we can examine it with the New Testament, but for them it came down to this. What do you believe about Jesus? It will define whether or not you are a Christian. Jesus is the very essence of our faith. If we take away the person and the work of Christ, we are no longer Christians. Without a proper understanding of Jesus, we are just another religion in a world full of religions. So that is how we know if a spirit is of God. But what about the spirit of the Antichrist? Well, I would say anyone who denies the virgin birth, deity, atoning death, and bodily resurrection. That's what makes someone a believer or not. So there are some groups out there that would say, hey, we are Christian. We believe in Christ. But as you examine it further, you find out that what they believe is that Jesus and the devil are actually brothers. It actually flies in the face of Scripture. It actually flies in the face of the person, the work of Christ. And it's what it, it makes you not a Christian. 
Now, this issue is not a fine point of doctrine. There are a lot of Christians all over the world that disagree on all kinds of matters, all kinds of doctrines, right? So we even talk about in our, in our Sunday school, our sign gifts for today. The, the, it breaks down into the cessationist group and the continuationist group. And that, there's a big debate there. That's a finer point of doctrine. That's something that we can debate that, you know, just because someone has one belief on that doesn't necessarily make them the Antichrist. It doesn't make them heretics. It means that there is a debate there, and we should be able to give our brothers and sisters in Christ some grace. How about how the church should be governed? There's all kinds of different ideas about polity. There are some people that believe that, you know, that there should be a presbyter sitting in California that kind of calls some shots here at Calvary. There's people that are like really strict congregationalists that think that everything should be brought to a vote. There's people that believe in like an el- our church is an elder-led, congregationally-ruled church, which means the elders lead the church. There's all kinds of debate on how the church should be governed. From one end of the spectrum to the other, there's a lot of freedom that we can give each other. Now, what we want to do is we want to examine Scripture and we want to do the best of our ability to follow what we think Scripture says, but we can't look at our brothers and sisters in Christ who are Presbyterian and say, you guys are wrong, so you're anti-Christ. That's wrong for us to do. Another one is about the role of women in the church. Once again, we can look at a couple different verses and we we try to do our best to exegete that, that piece of Scripture. But there's a wide range of beliefs there. There's a wide range of where people fall on that. And we, we want to do the best of our ability to follow that, where we think Scripture is saying, but when we see people on one end and people on the other end, we don't call them heretics just because they disagree on a finer point of Scripture than we do. We can say, you're wrong, but I don't think that makes them the Antichrist. And I would even argue about the office of apostle today. We can debate that. We can, you know, some people look at Ephesians 4.11 and they say, God gave some to be apostles. And they say, boom, there's the office of apostle. He doesn't say that that's going away. And so they think that the office of apostle still exists today. And I would say, I disagree with you. I think we see in Acts that in, the, in Acts, they had to have been taught by Christ personally. And since none of us are being by, taught by Christ personally right now, that office is over. That's what I would argue. But I wouldn't say just because you hold to the office of apostle, that makes you an antichrist. Now, if you say because I'm an apostle that I can write new scripture, then we have a disagreement there that might take that to the next level because I think scripture is closed. How about the age of the earth? That's another one that sometimes people like to throw around. Say that you're a heretic because you believe that there's an old earth. And I say, no. We've got a lot of freedom there, and we're arguing over a finer point of Scripture. And we want to look, and in our church, we believe that that there's a young age to the earth. But just because you believe in an old age, that's 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 a finer point. And I don't think you're a heretic if you believe in an old earth. Even if you said, hey, I believe that God created evolution. I know. I disagree with that. I don't think we evolved. But it's okay if you're a Christian and you think that God created evolution and used evolution to bring us about. I think you're wrong. But that doesn't make you a heretic. And I am going to stand firm for grace. 
to say that you are also a believer, you have also got the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, and you are also an important member of the body of Christ. A current issue is what songs should be sung in church. Now, I'm not going to get too into this, but we're actually going to have a special business meeting in the future. We haven't decided the date yet, but we're going to have a special business meeting in the future to kind of discuss should we sing certain songs from certain artists or not? When we settle on a date, we'll, we'll uh, announce it to the church, and you're more than welcome to show up and talk through that issue with us. But I think it's important, wherever you land on that issue, that's one of those finer points of Scripture. And you're getting really dangerous when, if you start calling someone a heretic because they disagree with you. All of these, all of these points I just talked to, and there's so many more, but all these points are finer points, points that we want to turn to Scripture for answers to, but also points that sometimes can seem very difficult to understand because there are nuances in Scripture. We were studying in, in Sunday school that there's a gap between the original audience and, and the writings of Scripture and today. There is a gap, and sometimes what we try to do is we try to do our best to fill in that gap, but because there is a gap, sometimes we get a little lost. And sometimes it's difficult to figure these out. So because there is a gap, that sometimes leads to different interpretations. And I want to, be, I want to stand so firm on grace because the, these different interpretations are not necessarily heresies. They're not necessarily false doctrines, just different interpretations. And that's okay because these points are not central to the faith. They are not the very bedrock of the faith. On these points, we need to give a lot of grace to those who disagree with us. We should not call them heretics because oftentimes they're desiring to submit to Scripture the way they best interpret it. And I think there are some Christians that begin to throw around that term way too fast. And anyone that disagrees with them in their theology becomes a heretic. And in my mind, that should be reserved for someone, for if someone does not agree with the person and the work of Christ. And that's what John has laid out here for us. Notice he doesn't say that the Antichrist is someone who has a, a disagreement on the finer points of Old Testament Scripture. He didn't say that. He didn't say a heretic is someone, or an Antichrist is someone who disagrees with you on whether or not the sign gifts will fade away when that which is perfect comes. Paul had already written that, but he doesn't address that. He addresses it very succinctly. It has to do with, can you confess Jesus as the Christ or not? So these false prophets were not arguing about secondary or finer points of the faith. They were outright denying the person and the work of Christ. And that's what makes them a heretic. That's what makes them an antichrist. Now with all this talk of antichrist and being led astray, some might get a little frightened. Some of, the, some of John's audience might be frightened. They might be scared. Like, wait, what? What's going on? Am I being led astray? And some of them might think, well, we better become heresy hunters because we don't want to be led astray. But John, as a loving teacher, gives them hope. And he picks up in verse 4 with this hope that I think we can still have. Little children, once again, notice how he addresses them with love. You are from God and have overcome them. 
For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What an important and encouraging verse. So the encouragement is that they are from God. They don't have to question whether or not they are part of the Antichrist. Because they are from God. They don't have to question, even if they get some theology wrong, which you and I are going to get theology wrong. We do it. If you don't think that you're getting some theology wrong, you are an arrogant person. You are full of pride. We get theology wrong. And I hope when someone confronts me that I have wrong theology, I'm willing to say, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong. And I hope that I'm willing to change my mind. But we don't have to worry, even if we get things wrong, because we are from God. The audience might be wondering, hey, am I of the devil? And John says in a loving manner, no, you are from God. Don't let the false prophets deceive you. Don't let others try to undermine your faith. You affirm the person and the work of Christ. You are from God. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. The them here is the false prophets. Those that would try to convince them false ideas about the person and the work of Christ. And here is the line that I think we should all memorize. So we have overcome them, right? But here's what we should memorize. Why have we overcome them? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We, I haven't overcome them because of my own strength. I haven't overcome them because I am greater. I don't have the strength to overcome the false prophets. I don't have the strength to overcome the enemies of Christ. It is not my strength that enables me to overcome them. It is the strength of the Holy Spirit that is indwelling in me. Because you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you too have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the, Holy, the indwelling Holy Spirit will lead you in all knowledge. You don't have to worry because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You can identify who is of God and who is of the devil. You can have the victory, or I should say you have the victory already because greater is he who is in you. The one who is indwelling in you is greater. And that should give us a lot of confidence that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is greater than the one who is in the world. So John goes on to give us the description of who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So once again, those, the they here is the false prophets. And the false prophets were aligned with the world's operating system. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that the world's operating system is a system of selfishness to the core. And those in this system would use others to benefit themselves. This often plays out in a religious context. We would call it self-righteousness. And I believe we see this everywhere we look. Even in secular circles where they would say they reject religion, there is an idea that someone is better or more righteous because they have the right ideology. You know, they pay their carbon taxes. So it doesn't matter how much I fly my plane. I pay the carbon taxes. Or maybe they think they're better because they have the correct politics. Who'd you vote for? Surely I'm more righteous because I understand politics better than you do, so I vote for the right person. 
or maybe because they drive the right car, or they live in the right places, and so on, and so on, and so on. We see this all over in the world, people trying to prove that they are more righteous than you because of what they do. So the world's operating system produces a world where everyone is trying to prove they are more righteous than others, and they are willing to use others to do this. So there's a lot of alignment between the false teachers and the world's operating system. And part of this, I think, also comes with an affirmation of sin. Because in order to feel right, one must ignore the sin that one struggles with. So we see people condemning sins that they don't struggle with. It's easy to condemn a sin you don't struggle with, right? Those heathens over there. If only they were like me and didn't struggle with sin. But there are also affirm sins that are culturally acceptable to affirm. If it's going to make me better in the eyes of the world, then I should probably affirm that sin so that I can look more righteous. So this is one of the reasons why religion is so popular and so widespread. Because religion is nothing more than simply inserting God into the world's operating system. It's a way to cover your sin and make you feel like you are somehow now more righteous than others. And people who belong to the world that are entrenched in the world's operating system, they hear this and they say, it sounds good to me. Sign me up. I can be more righteous by my works and I can cover up my own sin and I can get my sin affirmed. Sign me up. And this is why God's grace is scandalous to this world. It doesn't line up with the world's operating system. It's not a system in which I prove my value by affirming socially acceptable sins while earning my righteousness through my own power. So to think that God makes you righteous, that God made you holy, that there's nothing that you can do to make yourself more holy or less holy, but that God loves you in such a way that he came and he paid the price for you even while you were in rebellion against him, that is a scandal to the world's operating system. And to think that there is no hierarchy, that God values and loves everyone, that is scandalous to all of those that are still in the world's operating system. So the world's operating system is a system that uses other people to gain their own power. And, and they do this by affirming certain sins while earning righteousness through their own power. But, John keeps writing, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the we here is a reference to the apostles. The apostles were appointed by Jesus to establish his church. John is letting us know that if we know God, we will listen to the apostles' teaching. For us today, we look at scripture, right? And we try to understand what it means. We understand that the apostles either wrote this or approved of the writing. So like Luke, who wrote both Luke, the gospel according to Luke and Acts, was not actually an apostle, but the apostles approved of his writing. So we look at this and we say that this is either apostle approved or it was written by an apostle. And we try to understand what it means. We study it. We inspect it. We try to discern the meaning and we try to apply it to our lives. When we get it wrong, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not listening. It just means that we got it wrong. So getting something wrong doesn't mean you're not of God. 
In fact, I go back to, once again, there are people who would disagree with our view on apostles. They study scripture, they interpret things one way, and I believe that they're wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're false teachers. They cross the line, however, when they believe their teaching is on par or superior to scripture. When they believe they can usurp the authority of scripture, when they believe that they can overrule scripture, when they when we can rightly say they have crossed the line is when they do that. But we can still have confidence even when we get things wrong because we are aligning our lives more and more with Scripture. We're studying Scripture, trying to find what it means, applying it to our lives. So we're turning to Scripture to let Scripture be the authority in our lives. So during the time of the apostles, there was new revelation. God was speaking and the apostles were writing. Some saw this authority and saw a chance to gain a following. They started becoming politicians in the church and tried to usurp authority. This has been a problem throughout the church. Throughout church history, there have been people trying to do this. And it still can be an issue today. So my prayer for our congregation is that we would have confidence in the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us through all truth. That we would have confidence that we are of Christ. And that we would be a congregation that stays rooted in the scripture, letting the scripture be the authority. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is authoritative in our lives, that we can trust it, that we can turn towards it, that we can look to it. And we thank you for the confidence that we can have in you because of it. And that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, which helps us to discern what is right and what is wrong. Who is of the devil and who is of you? And we pray, Lord, that we would give grace on the finer points. Help us not to squabble over the finer points. Help us not to be a, a people that are quick to call others heretics. But that we would offer grace on the finer points and hold fast to the bedrock of our faith. In your name we pray. Amen.